With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Allison Chantel. I was in Davos, Switzerland last week for the World Economic Forum, where billionaires, CEOs, presidents, and other leaders gathered to discuss what's on their mind and the state of the world. I got to meet with some influential people, and I'm excited to share one of those conversations with you right now. Peggy Johnson is the Executive Vice President for Business Development at Microsoft. She gets paid millions to help make Microsoft billions as its dealmaker-in-chief. One huge deal she helped lead was the acquisition of LinkedIn for $26 billion. Peggy joined three years ago after spending 25 years at the telecoms company Qualcomm, and Microsoft CEO Sasha Nadella personally called her on a Saturday to help get her on board. To understand Peggy Johnson and what has made her so successful, you really have to go back and understand her family. Peggy was the 14th of 15 kids. She was a quiet listener who learned how to read her siblings' facial expressions from the kitchen counter. Her chair couldn't physically fit at her family's table. Peggy followed some of her siblings to San Diego State University, where she started studying business. But she loved math and science, and a chance encounter while at the university changed her whole career trajectory. Yeah, my parents had two rules. Um, you had to go to college, and you had to pay for it yourself. <laughs> and so we all did. And uh, was delivering mail, and happened to deliver mail to the engineering department one day. And the two ladies at the other end of this long hallway is like, you know, with linoleum floors, and they could hear me coming down the hallway, and they were super excited to see me, like more excited than they should have been just because I was delivering mail. And it was because they thought I was there to ask about engineering. And, oh, you know, they were disappointed. And they said, we thought you wanted to know something about the School of Engineering, and I said, nope, just delivering the mail, and they said, well, do you know anything about engineering? And I said, you know, absolutely nothing. No one had ever really talked to me about engineering. And so they asked me the same question, do you like math and science? I said, I love it. And they just started to work on me. <laughs> and after, you know, 15, 20 minutes, I felt like, you know, this might be something I want to do. And the next day I changed my major to engineering. Yeah, to electrical wow. engineering. And I credit those two ladies just, you know, worked on me and <laughs> changed my mind about... Changed your life. My life. The whole trajectory of my life really right. changed in that conversation. And so then you wound up getting a job at GE. Right. This great electrical engineering major. Yes. Um, and you spent a couple years there? Yeah, I started as an intern while I was still at school. And again, San Diego State put me on a great course because they had a number of great internship opportunities. And this area of General Electric was um, in their military, military electronics division. 
and I worked on anti-submarine warfare for surface ships. So um, it sounds very interesting, I'm sure. You might know more about that, but, <laughs> but I can't say anything because I had a clearance. <laughs> so, but it was a job I might still be in today if not for, it seemed like it was going to move to Syracuse, New York. And of course, I was in San Diego, California, but I didn't want to move. And well, I've got to look for a job here in San Diego and ended up saying no to GE. Is that when you went to Qualcomm? Yes, and I just answered an ad in the newspaper, which they don't do anymore. You probably never even heard of that, but yes, that's how you used to get jobs, look through the newspaper. Yeah, the classifieds. <laughs> the classifieds. And there it was, it was this new company, and they were hiring, and my husband had had an internship at the predecessor to Qualcomm called Linkabit, and he said, you know, Erwin Jacobs is an amazing man. He had owned and run Linkabit, and he said, this company, I don't know what Qualcomm does, but I think you should. And he's the founder of Qualcomm? Erwin Jacobs is, yeah. And um, so prodded by my husband, who was at that time pursuing his master's degree. And one of us, we were married, one of us needed to work, so that was me. (laughs) So I went in, had an interview, hardest interview of my life, and ended up getting the job and stayed there for 25 years. Yeah, it's incredible. And, but it seems like while you had a long career there, at first it seemed like you were soft-spoken and it was hard to kind of get your point across in it a loud was. room of guys. It was. And um, I'm soft-spoken probably going back to the family experience. And we're 14 out of 15. It wasn't, you know, an enviable position to be in. It was, you know, you were just one of so many voices at the table. And I was one that had to sit at the side table. So I was like at the kids' table till I was like 24 years old. And um, <laughs> so I was more of a listener and I was quiet largely because I couldn't really ever break into that chaos at the big table. But I was a listener and I would watch people and I would kind of you know, try and understand their mood. And those skills were what I brought into my job at Qualcomm, and maybe not great skills, because when I got to Qualcomm, you, they, the expectation really at that time was you need to speak up more, you need to be more assertive in meetings, you know, we want to hear from you more. And whenever I did that, whenever I tried to be what I was, and it didn't really turn out very well, and I didn't feel very authentic, and in fact, people would kind of look at me as, you know, why is she being so assertive and aggressive here? You know, that's not like her. And, and it wasn't. And it wasn't my authentic self. And so pretty much I had decided I think I have to leave the industry, the company. I'm just not suited for this. And um, my manager at the time said, no, we're going to figure this out. You're going to stay right where you are. And really I credit him for making a lot of changes in the HR department at the time because we were ranked by a certain attributes that... I didn't have. <laughs> so when, you know, and, and I remember being marked off for not being aggressive and assertive in meetings. And, and he said, we are going to change this and we are going to make sure we have a broader set of qualities that we're looking for. Things like teamwork and being collaborative. And he really pushed, and this was, you know, early, early days. And uh, things changed from that point on. And Once I was able to be my more authentic self, I felt like that's when my career 
really took off, and I was just my own voice. Yeah, so he sort of gave you permission to be yourself and help you find your own leadership style. Yes, yes, and I always credit him for that because I might have just left, like I think a lot of women did at the time, and you know they just didn't feel comfortable. It didn't feel like a very inclusive environment, and he helped change that. So you go on to stay for many, many more years at Qualcomm. Yes. 25 years, I think you said. Yes. What enabled you to stay so long, and what made you so dedicated to that one company? And then, I guess, eventually, what made you pick up the phone for Microsoft? Right, yes. So um, first of all, Qualcomm's a great company, and they gave me the opportunity to really thrive in a number of roles. So I was an engineer to start with, and I was in the engineering department for several years, and then I had been going out on business trips because we needed to explain the product to the industry we were selling into. And one of the flights home, the general manager happened to be sitting next to me and he said, I don't understand, why don't you just come over to the business side? You you really seem to love doing that. And I like the way you translate sort of the technical world into the business world. I think you, you could be um, well suited for that. And I thought, well, thank you very much, but you know, no thank you, I'm an engineer. That, I identified with being an engineer. And I remember thinking engineering at that time at Qualcomm was in one building and all the business people were in the other building and we made fun of them all the time because you know, they dressed up and we, you know, we got to wear our Qualcomm shirts and jeans and we thought we never want to have anything to do with that world. But it started to weigh on me and probably about four or five weeks went by and I remember sitting at our holiday party And all of a sudden I had one of those aha moments and it was, you need to do this. You need to make that leap because while I liked what I did, I loved being in front of the customer. And so I did and I moved over uh, into program management, which is sort of a technical and business role. And that was really the start of my business career at Qualcomm where I stayed then after that point. Wow, so you switched from engineering to the business development side and that's when things really Yeah, yeah, and I think part of it was the time, it was early days of the mobile phones, we were making the digital standard that was eventually was embedded into mobile phones in the US, and so we were, everything was exciting and new and we were forging new paths and it was such a great time to be at the start of a business and none of us had any idea what it would turn into. I don't think any of us at that time envisioned that everybody would be carrying cell phones. Yeah. I mean, we thought, oh, that'll, that'll be a good business. Uh, you know, maybe a few million of those will sell. And <laughs> so it was fun to be there at the start of that. But I had great managers along the way. And, and you know, anytime I wanted to do something different, they really supported me. And switching and that, careers isn't easy. I mean, exactly. it's a big risk. It is. And you're not, you're not quite sure. And if it doesn't work out, can I go back? And once I switched over, um, there, I had to learn a lot. Clearly, I didn't have a business degree, and a lot of it was on-the-job learning. But I had some great mentors and folks who leaned in and helped me and just loved every hat I wore after that point until I moved on to Qualcomm. Or, sorry, Microsoft from yeah. Qualcomm. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like you had a, a great <laughs> setup. You established yourself there, rose through the ranks, had great mentorship, it seems. Um, so, Microsoft calls. What, right. You'd been rejecting other calls before, kind of just hanging up the phone on recruiters. What was it about Microsoft? Though? Well, I wouldn't call them back. I wouldn't hang up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Okay, you were polite <laughs> <That's> about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was one of those interesting times. I hadn't ever called any back because... 
everything was great at Qualcomm. I loved it. And also, I was living in San Diego. My family was there. Everything was fantastic. But at the time in the industry, Satya had just taken over, Satya Nadella, as CEO of Microsoft. And we did business with Microsoft. We sold them chips. And so we knew, of course, of Microsoft. We didn't really know Satya. And one of the first things he did is he decided to put Office on iOS and Android phones. And that blew us away. I, I mean, not probably not just us in Qualcomm, but the industry, that, that was quite a move. It was a, quite a bold move. And so when I got the call from Microsoft, they said, well, it's a job of reporting to Satya, you'd be running business development. And I thought, I just want to call back to understand, you know, what it's about, what, you know, company seems to be in this big transition and just want to learn a little bit, basically. But of course, was never going to go anywhere. I lived in San Diego. There wasn't any question that I was going anywhere. And when I called back, I was just drawn in. And eventually, I had a conversation with Satya. He called you on a Saturday? He did. Yeah, he did. And so I was chatting with him. And again, it was kind of like another aha moment. He was talking about his worldview of a mobile-first, cloud-first world. And all of a sudden, I, it just connected with me because obviously I'd been living in a mobile-first world, a wireless world, and that's what I knew inside and out. I felt very comfortable in that world. And then when data left the phone, it went off to that thing called the cloud, and you know that Qualcomm didn't have much to do with that. And um, as he was talking about this idea of ambient computing and having intelligence everywhere, it just clicked with me that this is something I need to know more about and I want to understand more about Satya's vision and eventually took a trip to Seattle and I remember getting on the plane in San Diego feeling like, you know, I hope nobody sees me because I've never done this before. (laughs) I'm going to go visit another company for a job possibly and had a chance to meet the rest of the management team and then to sit down with Satya and uh, his vision you know, to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. It just struck me and it resonated with me. And I ended up saying yes, making the move with my family. I, we had only one child at home at that time. And so we moved up to Seattle where I live today. Wow, yeah. I mean, he's done incredible things with Microsoft. He has, so absolutely. What, what's he like to work with? Very empathetic. He's a listener, he's a learner, curious. We're allowed to fail, learn from it, but it's super important. But he's really changed the company at its core. And we are following a growth mindset, which he introduced to the company. And I feel like whenever we sort of get off path a little bit, we come back to the growth mindset. We'll say, are we exhibiting a growth mindset here? You know, it's easy to say no. I always say, you know, any idea, you can have 10 no's. It's a lot harder to say yes. And so the growth mindset allows us to push borders a little bit and to say yes more, try things out, fail fast. And I I believe it's changed the core of the company. And I hear that from others outside, which is very gratifying. Uh, But what's so exciting is that the campus is energized and it's just been 
a wild, crazy, fun ride for the last three years. Yeah, so it's been three years. You've done a lot in three years. One thing that stands out is you worked on, with a big team, but you really worked on this LinkedIn deal. Um, Microsoft bought LinkedIn for $26 billion. Yeah, $26 billion. Yeah. Um, so how does a $26 billion deal happen? How long did it take? What happens behind the scenes? Because most of us don't it get It takes to an army, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say the evolution of an acquisition that big has to go through many, many gates. And it starts with sort of conversations. It starts with a strategy. Are we the better owners? And, you know, looking at it from all different angles. Clearly, one of that size needs to be assessed fully. And we have fantastic teams across the company who are so good at that assessment. And also the engagement, once we decided to make the decision to, to go forward, the engagement with the company, the integration part, which is so super important. You can make all of the great strategic assessments ahead of time, but if you can't integrate well afterwards, you've lost a lot of money. And the teams at Microsoft are just first class at that. So is it like... A 10-month process, a six-month faster? I can't remember. You know, there were, there were conversations for a long period of time, but then once we sort of pulled the trigger, I want to say, I, I don't know, maybe it was somewhere between six and 12 months. I can't, I can't quite remember from the time of the first conversations until... Uh, we announced that we were going to proceed with an acquisition. Waiting to announce this. I mean, when I saw the headline and we were writing it on Business Insider, I was like, oh, whoa, this yeah. is a huge deal. And it went totally under the radar. You didn't get scooped. Um, Another so. thing we, I think we did a very good job on, because you know, obviously a team that size inside the company did a very good job of keeping things quiet on both sides, mm -hmm. including the transactional folks in between. So all of that had rolled out very, very well. It was sort of the example of how you'd like to do an acquisition. I'm sure you say no, of course, much more than you say yes. One that stands out is Slack, I think, was an opportunity to buy, and I think Microsoft ultimately passed along with some others. Um, but on a deal like that, how do you weigh it? Well, without commenting specifically on Slack, I would say for any acquisition, we, we ask that question, are we the better owners? Does it fulfill a strategic gap that we have? Because many times a partnership is just, it, I, I could, would say even better oftentimes, because there's, to be an owner, you have to be all in. But if a partnership can work to fill a gap, we'll go that route. Sometimes we'll make an investment in a company um, because they're on a, a quicker path to filling a gap, but they may need a little help of, in the form of resources to get there. And then finally, if the right answer is yes, we are the better owners, we'll go the full way and go forward with an acquisition. So we do sort of an ass assessment that way and um, we try to be very, very disciplined and you know, stick to our core ambitions and not you know, sort of go too far off of that because that's where I think you get into trouble. So we talk ourselves in and out of things often. <laughs> You've said that prioritization is a skill that you learned really early on. Do you have tips? How do you figure out, in a job as huge as yours, I'm sure you have a million different things that you could be doing, how do you focus and how do you zero in on the right things? Well, I think I learned it from my mom, who is probably the program manager-in-chief uh, to run a house like that. Because one of the things she used to say is, you know, we, we may have 15 kids, but we're not going to be a messy house. You know, we don't want, when, when people come in the house, we don't want them to say, oh yeah, this is what I thought a house of 15, 15 kids, kids would look like. 
So she was very disciplined and she made lists and I love lists and checking things off the list always feels good. So I learned sort of that prioritization from my mom and that it's not important to get everything on the list done, but really to make sure that you set out in the morning to get the top ones done. And, and that's what your focus should be. You shouldn't be stressed that you didn't get to the bottom of the list. And she was very good at that. And another skill of yours is you're great, from what I've seen your coworkers say, you're great at building these relationships that last a long time. And especially in the biz dev business, it's so critical to have that. How do you do that? What's your, what are your tips for building long lasting work and general life relationships? Yeah, and I think it goes back to that family table when I was the listener in the room. And that is something that is probably a little bit underrated, but for me has been, I feel like the core of my, um, my leadership abilities is the ability to listen and to deeply listen and to understand and put myself in the other person's shoes. And, and once you do that, you can solve whatever problem is on the table, whether it's a business problem or a technical problem. I think more quickly, having that ability to put yourself on the other side. And then I have a kind of more general landscape question. Um, I think someone asked you once what you thought the biggest issue women face in the workforce is, and you said harassment. And certainly, we've seen a lot of stories about that this year. Harvey Weinstein on up. What do you think we can do better? How do you think we can fix it? What have you seen that makes you say that? Well, I, I just feel like you should be able to have a respectful work environment because if you do, you'll be your best self. You bring your best self to work. And over the years, there was always that whisper network when you know there was people you avoided because you didn't want to comment about your dress or something. And I think of all the cycles that I, you know, my friends and I would share, you know, don't go by that person's office, go the long way around. And um, those cycles could have been put to a lot better use. So there's kind of a business reason to, to stop this. There's obviously all of the other reasons that, are, that we've been talking about since uh, the Me Too movement started, but there's also a basic business reason. We could be so much more productive if we didn't have to spend all those cycles sort of fending off that, you know, sometimes subtle harassment, but it, it sort of exists there. And if we can together say, let's just have an inclusive, respectful environment at work and teach our boys and our girls that I think we'll be far more productive, we'll will be our best selves, we'll bring our best selves to work because we know we'll be in a, uh, in a comfortable environment. So for a final question, you've had an incredible career, many years ahead of it still, but the point that you've gotten to is just really inspiring, which is why we asked you to come on this podcast. Um, so if you're looking back or you're giving someone advice who's just starting their career, what do you wish you had known then um, and, and what would you advise someone who wants to rise to the top like you have? I, well, I think the best advice I ever got was just to be myself. And I think once I settled into who I am, I'm quiet, I'm somewhat introverted, and decided that's okay. It's okay to be who I am. Then my career took off. So for someone starting, I would say be who you are. And, and if you're aggressive and assertive, that's fine too. Just embrace who you are because we really need that 
diversity of thought at work. We don't need everybody, we don't need a bunch of Peggy Johnsons <laughs> of any one type. We really need the sort of the mix and the blend of all the different opinions and voices. And that, uh, I think, would be good advice for someone just stepping into their career. Thank you so much, Peggy. It's really been fun. I appreciate Thank you, you Thanks, Thanks for you. having me. Appreciate it. Yes. Thanks for listening to Success, How I Did It from Business Insider. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please leave us a review. The show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Richards. Our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff, and I'm Allison Chantel. We'll be back with more success next week.